My name is Kevin O'Brien. For those of you who don't know me, I serve as one of the elders here at the Sugar Grove campus. And when my wife suggested the title, It's the End of the World as We Know It, for the sermon today, I thought, you know what? She's exactly right. 2016, as far as I can tell, was the year of the sign of the apocalypse. There was a 27-day period from October 13th to November 8th, and there is the, what I am calling the trifecta of the signs of the apocalypse. The first happened on the 13th of October. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Seriously. Think about that for a minute. Sign of the apocalypse number one. Number two, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Let me repeat that. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Now, my wife grew up a Toronto Blue Jays fan. She's a happy, well-adjusted person. I grew up a Chicago Cubs fan. I am scarred. You see, I remember 1984. I was in junior high, and they wheeled the AV cart into the study hall so we could watch the games. For those of you too young, we did not have phones. There was no cable. Channel 9 signal came in nice and strong at Circle Center in Yorkville. I remember Rick Sutcliffe and Bobby Denier and Lee Smith and Ryan Sandberg. I remember the Cubs fever, I remember the crushing defeat, and so even now it feels a little bit odd for me to say that the Chicago Cubs have won the World Series. Of course, you know the number three sign of the apocalypse. If I had told you on November 8th, 2015, I don't care what your politics are, that Donald Trump would win the presidential election, you would have laughed me out of the room. There's actually a fourth. I'm only bringing this up. The first service didn't get this, but my brother's here. My mother spent a month in Africa this year. You have to understand, she's been on a plane twice before in her life, and she went to Africa. It is just all kinds of shocking. If a certain warm spot hasn't frozen over by now, it ain't ever happening. 2016 was a bit of a doozy. And if you think about it, at the end of the year, at the beginning of a new year, we think a lot about what just happened. We look to the past and we think about the beginning of the new year. I looked at Google's top 10 searches for 2016. I looked at lists and articles about the year and I thought about how do I talk about this? I thought about doing a complete review of the year. But there was so much stuff. I wasn't sure how to organize it, how to express it. And there was a lot in 2016, Cubs notwithstanding, that was downright depressing. Here's just a few of the things that I found. <clears throat> These people died in the last year. David Bowie, Alan Rickman, he's either Hans Gruber or Professor Snape, depending on how old you are. Uh, Glenn Fry, Antonin Scalia, Boutros Boutros Ghali, Harper Lee, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, Nancy Reagan, Patty Duke, Merle Haggard, Prince, Muhammad Ali, Gordy Howe, Mr. Hockey, Pat Summit, the winningest coach in college basketball history, Ellie Weissel, 
This one was interesting to me. Romanian-born American Jew. He wrote a book called Night. He actually won a Nobel that matters, I think, because it was based on his family's in, and his survival of both Auschwitz and Buchenwald. Think about that. He survived them both. Gary Marshall, Gene Wilder, Phyllis Schlafly, Tim LaHaye, Arnold Palmer, Leonard Cohen, Janet Reno, Florence Henderson, that would be Mrs. Brady, Fidel Castro, John Glenn, Ellen Thick, Dr. Henry Heimlich, yes, that one, Zsa Zsa Gabor, the original Kardashian, George Michael, Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds, and just last night, William Christopher, Father Mulcahy from MASH. According to the Chicago Tribune crime stats, last night at 11.38, there were 777 homicides in Chicago. Nine more than when I checked on Tuesday. That's over a 53% increase from last year when it was 492. One source listed over 1,800 terrorist attacks directly responsible for almost 16,000 deaths. The Brussels bombings, the truck attack in Nice, France, where 86 died and over 400 were injured. The attack on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, a priest martyred in his church serving mass in France, doesn't count the attack in a nightclub in Istanbul last night. And most of those attacks we don't know about. Because the people don't look like us, and they don't talk like us, and their culture is different than us. Africa, and Turkey, and Iraq, and Afghanistan. Do you rem remember the attack in Pakistan last March? It happened in a park. 75 people were killed. Injured 340 people. It targeted Christians celebrating Easter. According to World Relief, at the end of 2015, so it's gotten worse this past year, over 65 million people have been displaced, with over 20 million of them living as refugees. In Syria alone, one half of its 22 million population is on the run. Over 6 million within Syria itself and almost... 11 million as refugees. And then there's stories like the Zika virus and Brexit and Iran and North Korea nuclear test and the opioid crisis in small towns in North America. In the U.S., anger and fear along racial lines is as bad as it's been since, I don't know, the 1960s. An epidemic of young black men killed by police officers and retaliation targeting police officers. And the fear and the violence and the, and the distrust escalates. Our recent presidential election, regardless of side, was largely based on fear. Both sides afraid of what the other would bring to the table. We see amazingly rapid changes and social values and morals. Christians worry, can we be a Christian and be in the public square? This doesn't count all the little stories of the people that we know and love. The things that never make the news, even the things in our own lives, emotional, physical, financial, health, lots of stuff happened in 2016. And it paints a bleak picture, and I'm sure that there's a lot of you silently saying, Thank you very much for bringing that up again. I thought we just changed the date. 
it really can feel like the end of the world as we know it. And it seems either delusional or downright evil to say, I feel fine. But as bad as all of that stuff is, more than all of those, I am worried about the state of the church in our culture. I'm not talking about Village Bible Church in particular, though I do believe we need to be vigilant. In the latest issue of Christianity Today, the editor-in-chief, Mark Galley, gets to the heart of my concern. I want to read some parts of uh, a short article that he wrote entitled, Where We Stand. We're having to write this two months before Inauguration Day, but one doesn't need the gift of prophecy to project that Christians will divide over the new administration, each side in an attempt to support or challenge an unprecedented and tenuous administration will inevitably find itself at odds with others. Some Christians will call for eternal vigilance, looking for signs that the new president is promulgating yet another injustice. Others will be tempted to defend his every move. Inevitably, the rhetoric will drift toward the apocalyptic and remain mired in the partisan and the name that will, be, that will t- continue to be above every other name will be Donald Trump. Love your neighbor means we all are called to engage in our nation's public life in one way or another. But when cultural engagement needs, leads to ecclesial divorce, church divorce, something has gone seriously wrong. More than ever, we evangelical Christians are finding it hard to live under the same roof. When asked about the family, we sneer. We're not like those Christians. Those hardly worthy of the name. Some have even filed for divorce with the evangelical adjective. Can we then be mystified when news pundits and social media mavens identify us only by our allegiance to or repudiation of this king or that instead of the king of kings? Some Christians have claimed that the evangelical vote for Trump has set back the cause of the gospel 50 years. Others are equally sure the gospel would have been set back by a different election outcome. One wonders if our raised fist and ugly rhetoric directed at brothers and sisters is the real scandal. You know, we can joke about the apocalypse, the end of the world, signs of the apocalypse, the end of the world, but I think Galley is right. There are real challenges to our time. Challenges facing the church. Challenges that... They cause the church to question, are we being the church? And in my estimation, these are the greatest needs of 2017. It has to start with us, the church, the body of Christ. And as believers, our story is God's story. We know the outcome. Even if, like the Cubs' victory, it still hasn't sunk in yet. God wins. He's not surprised, he's not depressed, he's not aloof, and he doesn't delight in our suffering. He's active and working and has a plan. He has given us the task of carrying out. Would you pray with me? Father, as we begin 2017, I pray that you would help us to see who you are and who you've made us to be. That in trying and difficult times, that you would help us to be your church both to one another and to the world around us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You see, the challenge of our time seems overwhelming, but it's not new. 
Since Genesis 3, the world has been under a curse. The cosmos itself has been under a curse. And the story is almost like a broken record, right? We rebel against God. We do what is right on our own eyes. He comes after us. Repeat. Whether it's the world around us or the church itself, the struggle, the challenge is real. And if you turn with with me to Ezekiel 37, we'll look at an instance of this challenge. Now, I know that Ezekiel is not a book we normally hear sermons from. It's weird. Let's just put it out there. There are strange images and visions and oracles. It's sort of the Old Testament parallel to the book of Revelation on the weirdo meter. Okay? Ezekiel himself is a strange dude even as prophets go. He did things like cook food over dung and laid down motionless for 430 days. And there's more. He was weird. So, in chapter 36, Ezekiel gets a prophecy of the restoration of Israel. And I'm going to start in verse 37. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am ready to hear Israel's prayers and increase their numbers like a flock. They will be as numerous as the uh, sacred flocks that fill Jerusalem's streets at the time of her festivals. The ruined cities will be crowded with people once more, and everyone will know that I am Lord. Now, remember, at this time, they're all in exile. They've been destroyed. They're in Babylon. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to, the, to a valley filled with bones. He led me around and among, all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living think- people again? O oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then, as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. The skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the messages he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Sometimes it feels like we're living in a valley of dry bones. Hope is lost. And like Ezekiel's vision, or perhaps 2016, we look around and we see destruction and death. We see more than a skirmish or a setback. We see battle, annihilation, and the bones are left bleached in the sun. Ezekiel's picture is not a pretty one. The people of Israel 
are in exile, scattered, again, cut off from the land, cut off from the temple, cut off from their God. Life is shambles. And we look at the list of things that happened in 2016, and sometimes we can relate a little. And here in the West, we have it easy compared to, say, the Christians in Iraq, or Egypt, or Syria, or Pakistan. We can cry out to God, exactly what's going on here? Why is this happening? What gives? But there's a thread in each of those stories that I recounted, I think. Whether conflicts and refugees, homicides or politics, even the deaths of celebrities, all of that points to, on our part, a longing for home. What is home? How do we make it safe? Who are we as a people, as the church? Home is the place where we are able to be most who we are. No putting on faces, no trying to impress, just us. Think about why we care about the deaths of celebrities. We don't know them. But they're cultural markers for us. They told the stories that helped us become who we are in many ways. On Thursday night, I hung out with a bunch of friends from high school. It was interesting. I hadn't seen them in a long time. And yearbooks got pulled out. And there was some really big teased hair going on back then. And mullets. It was never a good look. And we were talking about... People in our class, class of 1990, Yorkville High School, who had died. And then we talked about this list of celebrities, and I made the comment, it felt like I was watching my childhood go away. You see, these were the actors in TV and movies that mattered, right? The stories that we're told. These were... The musicians, the artists that made up the soundtrack to my junior high and high school years. It was weird, but in a weird sort of a way, they were home. And it felt like it was going away. The Jewish people in Ezekiel's day were mourning their home. Verse 11 says that they had no more hope. Over and over again in the Old Testament, home, the idea of land, a place, it matters. It's more than just a place, though. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. We get anxious when our home changes radically. We feel discombobulated. We don't know where we fit. But... The home that we're supposed to be longing for is something far different. More, really. We just celebrated Christmas. The birth of Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. And that is true home. It's what we long for. And one of the images that we hear throughout Scripture for the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head of the body the church is home 
This longing for home is built into us. St. Augustine said in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find they can find rest in you. I think that's good news on two fronts, at least. First, we long for home because there is one. And second, for Christians, this means we have a built-in point of connection with every person on the planet who has ever lived, is living, or will ever live. We all want home. And the stories we love, they all have another common element. Besides this longing for home, and it's hope. It doesn't matter how impossible the odds, how bad things look, we are all looking for hope in the chaos. In Ezekiel's prophecy, God asks, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel hesitates. Well, only you know that, God. That sounds to me like the uh, polite sort of Hedging your bets, Kevin O'Brien answered to a question that God would have. But God says, just watch me. And the bones rattled and jumped and bumped and coalesced and reanimated and became living, breathing people again. Because not even death can stop God. The tragedies of the world are real. The Jewish people in Ezekiel's time were scattered and enslaved, exiled and killed, but God brought them back. God has given us signs of hope. They're everywhere if we're willing to look. The dry bones came back together. God promised new life to the people because that's who he is. And not all of 2016 was bleak. Did I mention the Chicago Cubs won the World Series? Not only that, think about, I I like watching the Olympics. My wife loves watching the Olympics. Think of the stories. One of my favorite stories was Daryl Homer, black kid from the Bronx, single parent home, Mom was an immigrant from the Virgin Islands. He won the silver medal in fencing. First time in 112 years that an American did that. And Simone Biles and Lori Hernandez and Katie Ledecky and Phelps again. And a hundred others. And we've seen tragedy happen and people step in and step up and help out. Here in our own church we've seen the stories for the past month, of lives changed by what God has done. Ezekiel tells us God is up to something big. In his contemporary Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, 33, says, there's a new covenant coming, and I'm going to write it on your hearts. The challenge of our time is real. Whether in the cultural culture broadly, or specifically for the church. And for Christians, I believe, guess what? The challenge is going to get bigger in the coming years. Which makes being the church even more important. Because we know that Christ answered the challenge in the incarnation. If you look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15. Paul says this. 
Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and the authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who are once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Jesus came to answer the challenge of his time and our time and all time. The incarnation is God's answer to the challenges we face to the realities of a broken world. We just celebrated Christmas, and a lot of us would like to begin and end with Christmas. But Bethlehem is just the beginning. See, we like the Christmas story. There's a little bit of drama, but mostly it makes us feel good, right? We concentrate on Luke's telling of the story and not on Matthew's because we don't want to hear about Rachel weeping for her children. But Jesus as a baby gives us this fuzzy, kind of softly lit Charlie Brown sort of a feeling. Feels nice. Pulls us away from the realities we face for a moment. Colossians 1 pulls us and makes us look deeper. Bethlehem is just the beginning. Really, it's our entry point into the story. Colossians makes it clear it's not the beginning at all. The visible image of the invisible God. His existence was before all. He is supreme over all. He is the very instrument of creation. We need Bethlehem. We can't be Christians without Bethlehem. But just like Jesus grew up, just like he left Bethlehem, we don't stay there. It's the beginning It does, however, tell us something really important about who God is. You see, because Bethlehem is the impossible story, God delights in subverting impossible situations. If you're like me, you can look around at all of the terrible things in the world and be tempted to despair because of all of those big things. And frankly, the small things. You know, the ones that end up being bigger than all the big things because they're the ones that I face. Christmas shows us that God delights in subverting impossible situations. Frankly, so does Ezekiel 37. The dry bones came back together. Look at the entire story of Scripture. Time after time, God subverts the impossible. We've just seen it in the life of Joseph. 
He uses Moses, brought up as an Egyptian prince, to bring down Egypt and free his people. He blessed barren women like Sarah and Hannah and Elizabeth. Every major person in the Old Testament and the New was flawed. Think about the followers of this unconventional Messiah. Twelve nobodies from a rebellious outpost in the greatest empire on the planet. And they changed the face of the earth. No army, no weapons. Paul, the persecutor of the church, becomes the person who does more in the first century to spread the gospel, to spread the church, than anyone else. And at least part of it is probably because he was persecuting the church and people scattered because of him. God subverts impossible situations. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. That's the God we serve. The God who created all and is overall. We often don't get a chance to see, not directly, what he's up to. But we don't have to, because this is his resume. He is imminently qualified for the job. Verses 21 and 22 of Colossians 1 remind us who we were. God subverted our impossible situations. Paul tells the people of Colossae and tells us, in effect, remember who you were. You were enemies of God. You could do nothing right to right the wrong. You could nothing to bridge the gap. So God subverted even that. And that's the point of Christmas, of course. Because as important as beginnings are, the climax is the true heart of the story, right? That's where we need to be encouraged. Because as fun as Christmas is, we are Easter people. Verses 18 to 26, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and earth. And that's how God ultimately subverts the challenge of our time. This is who we are as believers. It's why Easter is ultimately our holiday. It's why we worship on the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. It's why we celebrate communion together, even though we are all different. Because it is in and through the life and death of Jesus Christ that we're reconciled to one another. That death is subverted and the new covenant is fulfilled. Jesus Christ answered the challenge. He is God who became one of us for us now and forevermore. And if this was a normal story, this is where the director would say, cut, end, seed, fade. But it's not a normal story. There's more. Because Christ still answers the challenge with the body of Christ. In Romans 12, we see an interesting thing from Paul. You see, the church is the way that God continues to answer the challenge of our time. And now... We have to be the church. 
God's church. He's called out ones. In Matthew 5, Jesus says we are salt and light. And we've, we've heard, you know, the, the sermons about salt and light. I've preached the sermons about salt and light and how salt is preservative and medicinal and all of these other things. And recently, I've had the chance to work with Oasis International on the Africa Study Bible. It's written by Africans for the world. In it, they gave another use for salt when they talked about this passage. And I don't remember the exact country or tribe, but there's a place where there's a country where there's regularly drought. Water goes away. The monkeys always know where the water is, but they're clever enough that they don't let the humans follow them to find the water. So what this tribe does is ingenious. They catch a monkey and they feed it nothing but salt. What does salt do? They let the monkey go. They follow the monkey straight to the water. You see, they get the monkey thirsty because that's what salt does. We are supposed to be salt. We are supposed to be making the world around us thirsty for what we have, for who we have. Romans 12. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the way to truly worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to do what is go- then you will learn to know God's will for you which is good and pleasing and perfect because of the privilege and authority God has given me I give you this warning don't think you are better than you really are be honest in your evaluation of yourselves measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function so it is with Christ's body We are many parts of one body. We all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing different things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability... Take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. 
Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Chapter 12 of Romans is the hinge of the book. It's the transition from showing the need for and the nature of the good news of Jesus Christ to the implications of it. What does it mean to live as Christians in a world that isn't? In Romans 12, Paul works out what Jesus says in Luke 10. Well, both the salt and the light and in Luke 10. In Luke 10, we see the greatest commandment. You must love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. It's a summary of all the law and the prophets, and Romans 12 works that out. How does the church do this? First, we love God. In verses 1 and 2, Christ means that God is still with us. Sometimes I read verses 1 and 2, and I get to that living sacrifice part really quick because it sounds really hard, and I forget that Christ comes first. Why do we sacrifice ourselves? Because of all that he has done for us. Why are we not to be corrupted by the behavior, by the customs, the patterns of the world? Because God is still with us. It's God that transforms us from the inside out. Changing the very way we think. And when we allow, it is when we allow this to happen that we see his will for us. Because he is still with us. No matter what's going on in the world or in our lives. God always comes first. And when we put self first, when we try to do it all on our own, even if we're trying to do the right things, we are inevitably going to fail. Verse 3 says that the faith we have was given to us by God himself. God comes first. The second thing about loving God, about faith, is that it is for the real world, body and soul. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we're tempted to believe that faith is purely an internal affair. Something that we believe in our heads and our hearts and that's it. And I think this is a large part of our problem. As the church, we've been allowed, we've allowed ourselves to be lulled to sleep. Into believing that real faith is just an internal faith. But loving God means doing it in our bodies, a living sacrifice. In verse 4, Paul says the church is Christ's body. This is one of Paul's favorite ways of talking about the church. We're the body of Christ. Jesus is head of the body. And bodies are for doing, for living. He directs, we act. Loving God means being the body of Christ. And how do we do that? We love others. Real faith doesn't stop at loving God. It can't. Real faith always means loving God and loving others. And a lot of times we separate one from the other. 
Galley says in his article, neither Paul nor Jesus suggests that it is the church's moral or political purity that makes Christians stand out in a pagan society. Rather, the church is weak. the, The church of weak, misguided, and partisan sinners is united by something that transcends our foolishness. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 35. How do we answer the challenge of our time? We love. It defines us to the world. I see three ways in Romans 12 that we, the church, the body of Christ, are to love. This is the really practical part, and we're getting close to the end. This is how we stand up. We need to do it publicly, not silently, not for our own acclaim, for props. History shows that we are as likely to be persecuted perhaps even more so than praise, for doing what's right. So first, we need to be unified. Paul tells us in verses 3 to 5 that not all of us are the same. We're not supposed to be the same. But we're all part of one body. We belong to each other. Each part has a special function. And when the body of Christ starts working at cross-purposes with, one, with each other, it's disease. Galley says this about the nature of the church. Under a regime best described as both anti-life and immoral, this is the Roman Empire, they recognized, the early church, that faith would be anti-relevant. When they preached and practiced the gospel, some rioted in the streets, Acts 19. Others sought to kill them, Acts 7. They preached that God commands all people everywhere to repent. From emperor to slave, from urban elite to rural poor, they called men and women to repent, not of their politics, but of their sins. To join the radical fellowship of the Lord in whose name they were baptized and broke bread together. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, men and women. Really, in their fellowship were both Greek and Jewish supremacists, oppressors and oppressed, chauvinists and feminists. And when from time to time they started dividing by identity or social class, they got an earful from James or Paul. They probably got this idea from their Lord who had welcomed into his fellowship both a revolutionary, Simon the Zealot, and a collaborator, Matthew, the tax collector. Village is a church of four campuses. We're not all the same. Rural and suburban and urban cultures and backgrounds. I've talked with Pastor Travis at Aurora. You want to talk about culture clashes? He's got to think through it. People who literally see the world differently. In July, the Aurora campus hosted a multi-church prayer service because of the racial tensions and killings in our country. It was one of the most beautiful and poignant things I've ever been a part of, and it's not enough. Paul tells us we have to be unified, but he also tells us we have to be faithful. He talks about gifts in verses 6 to 8 because God made us to be participants together. We have to use them, not hide them. And you have a part to play in the life and the body of the church. Doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. There's no age limit. There's no special status. Gifting is different. Serve, teach, encourage, give, lead, show kindness, whatever it is, do. When a part of the body doesn't show up, we limp. Or we can't lift what we're supposed to lift. Or we get sick and don't function properly. And this is not a recruitment pitch. This is a theology of the body of Christ. We can't individually or collectively be what we're supposed to be 
when we don't show up. It's not about being in front or being the most active or the most seen. It's about faithfulness. We need one another to show up to be faithful in the world we live in. And finally, loving others is active. This is where the rubber really hits the road. Unity and faithfulness require action. We have to do. The early church was active. They had their problems. There's no doubt about it. All of Paul's letters are basically trying to tell the church, remember who you are, behave. Why? Because it's hard work. Because it's in direct opposition to our fallen selves, much of, uh, less the world around us. But the early church did some pretty amazing things. It spread in the face of persecution and disdain. It reached out to those who hated it and showed a better and truer way. And Paul says, don't pretend, really love, in verse 9. And part of loving is hating what is wrong and clinging to what is good. Notice, hate what's wrong, not hate them. I struggled trying to organize this last point because Paul does something very interesting in this section. He goes back and forth between the people inside and outside of the church. And sometimes it's hard to tell which one he's talking about and I think he did it on purpose. Because we are to draw everyone in to Christ. To help them to be who God made them to be. Delight in honoring others. Work hard. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. Help those in need. Be hospitable. Pray for. Bless. Those who persecute you. Don't sue them. Be empathetic and peaceful. And don't be too proud or too good for others. Don't pay people back. Let God handle it. How do we show that we are the body of Christ? How do we lead in a culture that, frankly, we often think has gone mad? Verse 20 and 21. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. There are challenges in the world around us. People are looking for answers, and frankly, they're looking for answers in all of the wrong places, in entertainment and politics and sexuality and business and wealth. And the church, we have true answers, true hope. Not in plans, not in schemes, not in self-help solutions and resolutions. We have the answer to the challenge of our time. And it is Jesus Christ and we are his body. So, my challenge today, be the church. 2017 can be the end of the world as we know it. And we can feel fine about it. Because... When we're the hands and feet of Christ to a lost and dying world, it will cost us. It always costs to stand up, to speak out and tell the truth, to lead. But the world needs it. Frankly, it's counting on us. And so now, as the body of Christ, we take communion together.